The text that comes chiefly to my mind at this moment is, the time is past, the day is far spent, we have little time for all that I would like to give you in the next hour that we have together. I may this evening use fewer scriptures to back up each of the points I'm going to make, trusting that you know they're supported by Scripture because you know the Scriptures and because I provide it for you on a written page anyway because I want to finish what I began this morning if God will help us. Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 and read it once again to introduce to us the thought of God's ministry in His churches and it as one of the important duties for church members to remember their ministers. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, the apostle wrote, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. That is the seventh verse of this 13th chapter where the apostle is setting forth various and sundry duties for these Hebrew churches. And one of the duties is to remember their ministry. Verses 1 through 3, as I pointed out this morning, deal with how you relate to your brethren. Verse 4, with how you relate to your spouse. Verse 5, how you relate to yourself and your state of contentment or covetousness. Verse 6, how you relate to the world around you. Are you afraid of them? And then verse 7, how do you relate to your minister? I said enough this morning in defense of preaching on a subject like this. I'm not going to say any more this evening. I just want to go, and I trust that you'll follow with me. But before I do so, let's ask God's speedy blessing upon us. Heavenly Father, I thank Thee that you did send the Lord Jesus Christ not only to die for our sins but to begin a New Testament ministry for your churches and that when he ascended up on high you gave him gifts that he in turn gave to men and that those men might be for the profit of your saints bless me now O Lord that I might faithfully rightly divide the word of truth, and remind these people of their duties towards your ministers. For thy greater glory, the safety and preservation of the ministry, and the benefits that will accrue to them by so obeying. Have mercy upon us through Jesus Christ, and by thy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> Hebrews thirteen seven, The office that is under consideration in this verse is the office of pastor. There is a common error made primarily by the Presbyterians that there are two offices in the New Testament church. There are a number of Reformed Baptist churches that hold the same position, and that is that a church is to have ruling elders and teaching elders. The church elects, by whatever means the particular organization might elect, to have elders that teach and to have elders that rule. Some elders will sit in a presbytery and rule and make the policy for the church 
and other elders will actually stand in the pulpit and do the teaching. That's a common error of Presbyterianism and the Reformed movement, even among Baptists. The Bible does not know in any place of any such distinction. Wherever you find ruling, you'll find teaching. And if you can find teaching, you'll find ruling. God doesn't know of a minister who does one and neglects the other. Hebrews 13:7 teaches us that. Remember them which have the rule over you. Now there's a ruling elder, wouldn't you say? And it goes on to say about this particular man who's a ruler that he has spoken unto you the word of God. So he's not only a ruler, but he's also a teacher. When I, when I read the qualifications for a minister in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I read that first of all, they must be apt to teach. And then I read they must be able to rule their own houses well, because if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Because taking care of the church of God is so much like running a home. Teaching and ruling, both requirements to be a bishop in the New Testament church. I read in 1 Timothy 5:17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. So there we have those ruling well who also labor well in the word and in doctrine. I come over to Ephesians chapter 4. God gave apostles, he gave prophets, he gave evangelists, all three of which have disappeared from the face of this earth, and he left pastors and teachers. There is no ruling elder that is not a pastor and teacher. This is the office that we're dealing with. The New Testament office of pastor, also called bishop, called the overseer, and he is called an elder also. Now, Hebrews 13.7 uses this imperative verb. It says, remember. Remember. Now, the second half of the verse says, follow. But I want to deal with remember first. In what ways are you to remember your New Testament minister? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll take up another verb. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where the apostle is instructing the church of the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. The next verb that I want to take from the word remember is the verb know. The Apostle Paul here beseeches the Thessalonians to know their ministry. Now, is there anyone in this room that's a member of this body that doesn't know my name? Is there anyone here that doesn't know where I live? Is there anyone here that doesn't know I'm your pastor? What does the apostle mean when he says, know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord. The word know in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, for that matter, is not simply a word of mental recognition or mental cognizance. It's a word of intimate, familiar relationship. When you know someone, you know it in a familiar way. You know it in a close way. You know, the Bible uses the word know in several intimate expressions. For instance, Adam 
knew Eve, and what was the result of that knowledge? Cain, Abel, Seth, and all the others. It said, the Bible tells us that God knew Israel of all the families of the earth. Now, does that mean he didn't know there were other nations like the Chinese and the Japanese? Or the Canaanites? He knew them rather well. In fact, he knew why he wanted to destroy them. What did it mean? It meant that the nation of Israel was the only nation he had particular and close affection for. Know them which labor among you. What are you supposed to know about your minister? You should know his problems. Does a minister have problems? You should know his problems. You should know his fears. You should know his hopes. You should know his ambitions, his needs, his temperament, and so forth. You should know the man that is your minister. Remember his problems. Our church-related problems, and the more you know his problems, the better of a church member you'll be able to be. The more you know his problems, the better you'll be able to pray for him. The more you know his problems, the better you'll be able to step in and try to help relieve that burden. You should know his fears. What is your pastor afraid of? What causes him to experience fear? If you know what he's afraid of, then you would be able to give a word of comfort and encouragement at times, which is a way that you can succor your minister. I'll show you that before we finish this evening. How well do you know your pastor? What is his hope for this congregation so that you might be praying and laboring for the same things? Let me briefly give to you some pastoral problems. It's a big problem, and I, I count this my number one problem, to rightly divide the word of truth. To take the word of God and to teach it properly is a great problem. It's a problem that God has given ability for. He blesses us with his spirit, and he tells us to be careful and to give ourselves to reading. And he tells us to study, to show ourselves approved so that we can do it properly. But it's a problem. Think about that problem. Getting up and taking the Word of God and trying to rightly divide it. And there are more issues that cause problems that I have never brought before this congregation that would drive you to your knees in despair. When I bring problem texts to you and use them as a means to provoke your minds, they aren't big problems. I wouldn't bring them before you. There are problem texts that take a great deal of mental sweat to be able to handle. And there are some that you re you resign, you say uncle, and you cast off to the mercy of God for a while until he might shed some light on it later. That's a problem. Look at... Sec I'm not going to have you look, just think about it with me. The apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he said that he had been beaten several times by the Romans, several times by the Jews, stoned, shipwrecked, in perils of robbers, in perils of nakedness, cold, fastings. And he describes all these afflictions he endured. And then he said, but above all that, the care of the churches, the care of the churches. A pastor has to be worried about, in this particular case, 58 individual, very different, emotional, personality, 
specific cases and how they are handling the gospel and progressing in their lives. There are more things going on at any one point in time than any member can imagine. I never tell you all of them. I never tell anyone all of them. But I know what the apostle meant when he said, beat me, stone me, as Br'er Rabbit once did, but don't throw me the care of the churches. Do you follow my analogy? I mean, a beating and stoning and all of those things can be dealt with because they're physical. But the stress of worrying about church members and having the problems where you're trying to coax a particular weak member at the same time you're trying to slow down a runaway ram. You carry lambs and you beat rams. You tie them in hobbles to slow them down as they push on your backside, wishing you were making faster progress, wanting to run roughshod over the lambs. And they're always free with their advice on how the lambs could be better cared for. And then the lambs want to tell you how vicious those rams are. And you've got to manage both. And I'm not here trying to make myself out to be some martyr any more than the Apostle Paul did. The care of the churches, which in this case is one, thanks be to God, is reduced to the care of the membership. And I hope that you'll consider that as a ministerial problem. I read in 2 Corinthians 12:15, and this one hurts. 2 Corinthians 12:15, the apostle said, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I hope I follow my pattern, Paul. He said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. And I will gladly do that. I am spending the best years of my life for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. There are times when I must preach things and say things and do things out of love and a care for you and spending myself for you that you take that as an offense. And the more I love you and the more I spend, the less I am loved. The apostle set, knew that and he wrote of it. That's a ministerial problem. Just when you realize that you're giving them the cold, hard, gut-level facts of the Word of God, you have someone or some buddies resist it, resent it, and you're less loved for the greater effort. It's a ministerial problem. I am charged by the God of heaven not to show partiality in the congregation. Ever worried about showing partiality to your children? Ever felt you were guilty of it? Try 58 with such varying temperaments and backgrounds that make some far more attractive than others to spend time with, and yet I am charged not to show partiality. Solomon said, and he ought to know, that much study is a weariness not of the mind but of the flesh. It is tiring to sit and drive yourself to study something. When you've got a machine clinking away in front of you and all you have to do is take a bolt from slot A and put it in slot B, that's one thing the machine makes you go. But when you have to drive yourself to study and do original research, that is weariness to the flesh. If all I did was stand up here and preach to you from the Zondervan's Guide for Pastors 
for 1989, it'd be rather easy to be your pastor. I could run a nice job on the side. Zondervan's makes a nice manual. Every year they come out with it. They've got the morning service, the evening service, and a prayer service. They've got your weddings for the year and your funerals. They've got your hymns selected for you. You can buy it in any good bookstore. But when I preach to you, I do original research. If I read books or commentaries, I do it after I study the Word of God. I magnify the office. Solomon said it's a weariness of the flesh. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 says that a minister cannot, en cannot entangle himself in the affairs of this life. I have given up, as the Levites did, any personal ambitions in this life. Now, you may not think of that very often, but the flesh being what it is, there are thoughts of it. But I can still say before Almighty God, I've never looked back with any intent of ever returning. My hand is on the plow. I have a cramp in my fingers and they will not let go. You'll have to pry them. You'll have to pry the plow handle from my cold, dead fingers, as the NRA likes to say. But there are those thoughts of what would it have been like if I could have pursued the things that I do love. Ministers give them up. I have little time and emotion left for my family. You know, you, you may think to yourselves, it must be nice to be a pastor and to be at home since our pastor has his office at home with all the time he can spend with his family. By the time I get to my family, I said by the time I get to my family because I have not too much of it left for them, I'm usually emotionally wrung out. Every one of us has a certain level of emotional capacity, some more than others. That emotional capacity is such, and this is some philosophical reasoning, emotional capacity is such that if you give some of it to someone, it doesn't mean necessarily that someone else must be deprived. You can have certain aspects of emotion for one, two, three, five, or ten. But there comes a point where you are using that emotion of investing it in others where you don't have it left. You need replenishing. And there are times when I face my family at the end of a day where I have been trying to help someone with their problems where they are emotionally drained and I am trying to invest emotionally in them. I have nothing left but a desire to watch Monday night football and let three morons entertain me for a couple of hours. because I am emotionally exhausted. That's a ministerial problem. I need to be able to unload myself sometimes and let down my hair. Do you realize that all that gets filled up inside of me about all 58 of us, I like to let it out once in a while. You know, go out and beat a tree. Say a few not-so-pleasant words. You mean about some of us? Yes. 
Sometimes you get me so angry at a lack of growth and fruit, I want to beat my head in a wall and scream. Have you ever seen me do it? Where do I do it? How do I do it? When do I get to do it? Every minister struggles with that. Who does he get to share his burdens with? There's the weight of leadership, brethren. The Bible says, Be not many masters, knowing ye shall receive the greater condemnation. It is not a pleasant experience to be thinking about the consequences of leading a church in error. How many times have I gone home and I thank God for my temperament and I wouldn't change one iota about it, except its weaknesses, which are my fault. But I thank God for my temperament and if I go home on Sunday evenings and cry to my wife that I feel like I'm a devil leading the church of God down the primrose path of hell. Which I have said more times than I can number. It forces me to reflect on everything I've said, everything I've done, and it forces me to be careful. But there's that fear, and I'm glad the fear is there, brethren, because if the fear wasn't there, I'd be running hog wild because I've got an imagination and an ambition that doesn't want to quit when it comes to trying to figure out what God taught in His Word. And I'm glad there's some care and caution. I do not like those feelings. I do not like saying those words to my family. I do not like seeing my wife make a motion with her hand that looks like the roller coaster at Six Flags over Georgia, describing my swing and emotion. Because I can be here on a Sunday evening where you think, that I'm halfway to heaven in my zeal and enthusiasm for the gospel, and two hours later, I can be looking for the powder to put myself out of existence. But I'm thankful for that. But I want you to consider the weight of worrying about it. Most of you go to work where someone else is driving you. Brother Glenn and others who are self-employed must drive themselves. Brother Terry's out on the road and there's no one standing beating him on the back with a whip to make him go. But brethren, I don't even see a customer some days. Do you know what I mean? And I still have to drive myself in God's Word. And I'll tell you the most boring thing in the world to have to drive yourself toward. It's the Word of God. Because you men are working in the flesh, it's a whole lot easier than driving yourself to be productive spiritually every day. Those are just some examples of problems. The Bible says, know your minister. Think about some of those things and try to know. I've just given you some insight into my life. I did not do that to be a martyr. I did not do that for another crown on my, another star on my crown someday. And I didn't do it for you to come up and shake my hand after the service and tell me you feel sorry for me. I did it for you to go home and pray for me, which I'll get to in a few minutes. Know me. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Know my hopes. Know my ambitions for this church so that we can be praying and laboring and aiming for the same things. Know my fears that you can give me a word of encouragement from time to time. I need it. And I thank God for some of you that replenish my emotional tanks from time to time. If I didn't have you, I wouldn't be here today. I would have quit a long time ago. Some of you replenish me, and I thank God for you. Galatians chapter 4, 
verse 15. I want you to jump into the middle of this verse, or this should say the top third, where Paul said, I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. The Apostle Paul had failing eyesight. There are several evidences of that in the New Testament. The Galatians were of such a tenderness toward him and knew his affliction. They knew that, that they were willing to have plucked out their own eyes and given to him if eye transplant had been possible in 60 A.D., which it was not. But they were willing to do so. They knew of his affliction, and they gave him special attention in that direction. The closer you are to your pastor, the easier my job is. Because the better I know you, the better I can pray for you, the better I can prepare messages for you, the better I can try to help you, the better I know you. The idea that I don't want to bother my pastor with my problems in order to help him is an erroneous idea. I need to know your problems. I need to know where your weaknesses are. I can be a better pastor that way and it makes it easier for me. The closer you are to me, the easier it is. Look at Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. I want to give several examples now of saints that knew the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles. Paul said, Know them that labor among you and are over you in the Lord. That knowledge is not knowing my name or where I live or how old I am or what I preached about this morning. It is knowing me. Intimate, familiar relationship with your pastor. Know them. Know their problems, fears, hopes, and the other things I've mentioned. Here's an example of some sisters and their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1, And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, this is Luke 8, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. Now here are some women that followed the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles, and they ministered to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of these were converted whores. Some of these were well-off women who had money and financial means to provide everything that the Lord Jesus Christ needed. They knew him, they knew his needs, and they provided for him. Look at Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We're talking here about a familiar relationship between a pastor and his members, but it's not from my direction that we're talking about right at the moment. It's from your direction. To know your pastor. Acts chapter 16. And to have a close relationship with your pastor. There is an error. And it has crept in from, guess who? The Church of Rome. Where do the pastors live in the Church of Rome? Among the people? Or do they hide themselves? 
and they create an image of sitting behind a nice little grate where the people can come and confess their faults to them and they never know them. And they set the man up on high where there isn't much of a personal, intimate relationship between the two. That is not New Testament ministry. New Testament ministry, the minister is right down among the people. He is living with them, sleeping with them, eating with them, working with them like Paul with Aquila and Priscilla. And they know one another. Because I am one of you. Acts chapter 16, Paul's preaching in the city of Philippi. Verse 14, And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. I've preached on this verse before. The woman Lydia took care of Paul, Luke, and everyone else that was with them by having them come and stay in her home, and they did so. She knew his need. She had him in her home. There was a close relationship between Lydia and the apostles of our Lord. Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. I'm not using ministerial examples. Now I can show you where one apostle had a close relationship with another minister. That's not the relationship I'm talking about this evening. I'm talking about between you and me. And these examples, and if you read the New Testament, you'll find many of them. If you don't, if you exclude the ministry, are sisters. If you exclude the ministry, most of those who provided sustenance for God's ministers and had a close relationship with them to know him and to help him were sisters. Romans 16, verse 1. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church which is at Sencria, that ye, reserve, that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. Phoebe was a sister that took particular interest and care in the Apostle Paul. He said in verse 3, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers, in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles, a husband and a wife together. And then I read in verse 6, Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Now see, we're not told anything about Mary. We don't know where she lived. We don't know much about her. We know she's in Rome because of this letter. But what labor did she bestow upon the Apostle Paul? We don't know. But she knew the Apostle and she did things to help him. Know your pastor. And that knowledge is not simply mental recognition of him, but have a familiar, close relationship as we've seen in these scriptures. Remember my problems. And there's more I didn't list. But think about some of those. They'll never weigh on you like they weigh on me because you're not in the position. And that position makes all the difference in the world thinking about some of those particular problems I mentioned. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It was in verse 12 where the apostle said, Know them which labor among you, 
and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Notice that a New Testament ministry is where? They're over you. In what way? By their office. They're among you. In their daily conversation, they're among you, not over you. I'm your brother. The Bible doesn't use the term elder so-and-so. It uses the term brother Paul. I'm your brother. Yes, I'm an elder. Yes, I'm a bishop and an overseer and a pastor. But you don't need to give me flattering titles. That doesn't prove anything to me. I'm your brother. Verse 13. Here's another verb. It's an imperative verb. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. I've described a little bit about my work. I preached a seven-sermon seri seven series on this subject how long ago? Do you remember the seven sermons on the New Testament ministry? Almost three years ago. That's how long it's been. Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. To esteem someone is to hold them in high regard and in high respect. When you esteem something of value, you hold it up in its value. Now, the apostle just didn't say esteem your pastor. He said esteem them very highly. He didn't say esteem them highly. He said esteem them very highly. I'm going to preach what the Word of God teaches. Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. What is my work? What is my career? What is my profession? What is my calling? It's to give myself for you. That's my work. To serve God on your behalf. That's my work. And because of that work, you should esteem me very highly in love. Notice the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Looking at that little word in love, he had a problem with the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I've already read chapter 12 and verse 15 where Paul said, The more I love, the less I am loved. He says here to the same church, verse 11, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you. Our heart is enlarged. He's begging for a close, affectionate relationship with this church. He said, my heart's enlarged. My heart's about ready to burst with its love for you Corinthians. Ye are not straightened in us. There's nothing restricting my affection for you, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same... I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. How many of you want your children to love you? It's a pretty dumb question, isn't it? You all want your children to love you. A minister, if he's going to preach the New Testament, and if he feels like a New Testament minister, like cold-hearted Paul, and I say that as a fool, desires and craves the love of his congregation. His heart was about to burst. His heart was enlarged. You've heard of an enlarged heart, haven't you? His heart was enlarged. That is the seat of his affections for these Corinthians. And yet, theirs was straightened. It was restricted. They didn't want to love him because he picked on them. 
and he's begging for that affection from this church. That esteem, that high esteem, that very high esteem and love is because I'm sacrificing my life for you. Does that bother me? I love doing it. I wish I could spend more. I wish I could do better. But that's what I'm doing for you. I hope you'll love me as you want your children to love your own selves. Look at 2 Kings chapter 4. I want to give you some examples. 2 Kings chapter 4. I gave you some. Mary, Magdalene, Susanna, Joanna, Phoebe, Mary, Lydia, that helped Jesus Christ, His apostles in the New Testament. 2 Kings chapter 4. Beginning at verse 8. This is a tender story. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman. That doesn't mean she wore queen sizes. That means she had significant financial resources. Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. I like that. Lydia constrained Paul and Luke, didn't she? Do you know what constraining someone means? You won't give them an alternative. They have to partake. You have to stay with me. Now, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, you'll stay with me. If Paul would have gone somewhere else, what was he saying to poor Lydia? I don't count you very faithful. I mean, she did put him on the spot over there in Acts chapter 16. She constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. She made it a rule that, Elisha, if you're ever traveling this way and you pass through Shunem, you will stop here and you'll eat with me in our home. We can afford it and I want you to do it. And so it was, that was the pattern of things. Verse 9, And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is an holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed, and a table, and a stool. Brethren, that is not a cage on the wall. That's in addition to their home. I mean, it may sound like a bird cage hanging on the wall, but it's got a bed in it. It's a room. It's an upper room. You'll read about it if you were to continue reading the rest of this chapter. Let's put a bed there and a table and a stool and a candlestick, and it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. And it fell on a day that he came thither and he turned into the chamber and lay there. What a nice woman to know a minister's needs, to have been a traveling, circuit-riding, circuit-walking preacher in those days, you didn't have many places to stay. He always had a place to eat. He always had a place to stay when he came to Shunem. And so he came and he laid down there and took some rest in verse 11. He said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said unto him, say now unto her, behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. Notice. Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Here's a whole lot of care. Thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken for to the king? 
Or to the captain of the host, would you like reduced taxes? Elisha offers the Shunammite woman. And she answered, I dwell among my own people. I'm happy here. I'm in a good lot here in Shunem. I don't need to move anywhere. I don't need any special benefits. I have my relatives close by. I'm content. And he said, What then is to be done for her? He's talking now with Gehazi. And Gehazi answered, Verily she hath no child, and her husband is old. And he said, Call her. I wish I wasn't. I wish, brethren, I could be a pastor like Elisha. I wish I could ask you whatever you wanted, and I could do it for you like Elisha could. And when he had called her, she stood in the door, and he said, About this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, Nay, my lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid. And the woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. That's a tender story. That's a woman who took care of one of God's ministers who esteemed them very highly in love and poured a great deal of care on him and he took care of her as he had opportunity. Come back to Galatians chapter 4 and let's look at the church at Galatia again. Know them and esteem them. How did the Galatians esteem the Apostle Paul? Galatians chapter 4 and verse 14. Paul says of this church, of these churches, and my temptation which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected. That's esteeming someone. You don't despise them, you don't reject them. But received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. How high, if you were to be in line with New Testament churches, should you esteem your pastor? Now the apostles said very highly, and the churches of Galatia esteemed Paul as if he was an angel in their midst. They would have done anything for him, and the next verse is the one we've read already, they would have plucked out their eyes and given those eyes to the apostle if it would have helped. Not only did they think of him as an angel, they thought of him and treated him as Christ himself, and that fits so well with Matthew chapter 10 and verse 40 from this morning. He that receiveth you, speaking to the disciples, receiveth me, and those that receive me receive him that sent me. Do you treat your minister as if he were an angel from heaven? Should age affect the esteem you give to a pastor? Should a pastor that's 80 receive any more esteem than one that's 31, about to become 32? 1 Timothy chapter... You don't need to turn to it. You know it, don't you? Be thou an example of the believer in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Let no man despise thy youth. And if I was to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 you would find the Apostle Paul making special warnings to the church at Corinth, don't you dare despise Timothy because he's a young man, but to receive him and give him the honor that is due his office, even though he was a youth in the ministry. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we're talking about esteem of the ministry. Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. 
And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them. But the people magnified them. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them. But the people magnified them. The apostles were a select group of men. There were thousands of believers, but the believers never presumed to even think of becoming an apostle. Of the rest, durst no man to join himself to them. But they magnified them. They didn't join them, but they magnified them. Those are special men. Those are men that are giving their lives for us. Those are men that have the words of eternal life. They speak unto us the truth in the proper and true way of God. The people magnified them. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, make an accounting of your minister. How should you account for your minister? 1 Corinthians 4, 1. Here's the word of God. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, if you were to meet the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States or the man in charge of our budgets and heading the Office of Management and Budgets of the United States government, would you be impressed that he had the stewardship control of the financial inflows and outflows of the United States of America? Paul said, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I dispense not U.S. paper money, which is a rather lowly position in life, but the mysteries of God. I'm a steward of them. A pastor is a steward of them. And that's how you're to account for your minister. He's a minister of Christ. Philippians to receive Epaphroditus and to hold such in reputation. Your minister should be held in a high reputation. These are examples of what the Bible means when it says to esteem him, them, very highly in love for their work's sake. My work is your salvation and success and prosperity in this world. Esteem your pastor highly for that work. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Let's get a third verb. We've looked at the verb know. You're to have a close, a familiar, intimate relationship with your pastor as time permits, which I'll get to in a minute. Second of all, you are to esteem him very highly for his work in love. And I gave you some examples of that. Hebrews 13, 17, obey them that have the rule over you. I don't want to spend very much time on this point. I'm going to, I want to cover it quickly. This is humble submission to my teaching and ruling. And it involves both. I teach you the Word of God. The Bible tells me to command these things. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. Titus 2 and verse 15 says, These things speak and teach and exhort with all authority. I'm to command you to keep the Word of God. Obey 
those commands. What if I fail in one of those commands? What if it's visible that I'm failing in one of the commands that I have preached to the congregation? Does that reduce the obligation that is upon you? I read in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 3, The Pharisees and scribes sit in Moses' seat. Whatsoever they bid you do, do. But do not after their works. So far as I command you as a New Testament minister based on the Word of God, do what I say, and not as I do if I'm not living up to what I'm teaching, as those Pharisees and scribes did. I'll get to my obligation in a moment. I have to execute discretionary judgment at times. Are you willing to obey that judgment? You say, where do you have to execute discretionary judgment? We've had a great example. Attendance. Paul said it was his tradition that we weren't to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. I've made this illustration so many times, I know it's old. Is that once a year? Five times a year? Ten? Twenty? Fifty? Five years with never showing up that we finally exclude them? When is it that a church should exclude a member for poor or non-attendance? Who makes that judgment? The pastor does. The ruler. Someone must rule just as a father has to decide when he'll take no more from a son or a daughter. And a minister has to do that. Remember, he's the one responsible for watching for their souls, and it is not. No one in this church has been excluded hastily. Because God hasn't called me to exclude, but to save, if at all possible. How about modesty? How in the world would a woman ever be rebuked or excluded for immodesty, which would be unrighteousness if it was persisted in? Who makes a judgment of what's immodest? What about effeminacy, which is one of the sins to be excluded from the New Testament church? If a man is effeminate, who judges whether a man is effeminate or not? Someone has to make judgments on those type of sins that are not black and white. Either when you deal with adultery, either you've committed adultery or you haven't. Murder is either yes or no. Someone is either dead or they're alive, and you, have, you either have or you have not committed murder. But what about when it comes to something as vague as effeminacy? Who makes the judgment? The pastor must. Who is to manage the charitable distributions of this church? As monies are collected and given to the poor, who is to manage that distribution? The ministry is. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 11. The ministry was responsible. There's such good reasoning for that. The minister knows the needs of all the congregation. Who needs the most help? The congregation knows what private efforts have already been made in that area. The pastor knows who is not giving diligent effort to provide for their own family and therefore doesn't deserve Christian charity. A pastor must rule in matters like that, even though you might feel someone deserves charity. What about a matter of controversy? What if a controversy arose in the church that could not be settled? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. 
What if the jigsaw illustration that I've been asked not to use, Brother Lauren said he'd buy me a jigsaw so I could quit talking about returning it. What if the jigsaw situation, and they can get sticky, ask anyone from the Detroit church, what if the jigsaw situation became too difficult for a church to handle it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where they're to judge in the small matters? Look at Deuteronomy 17 verse 8. If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment, between blood and blood, between plea and plea, and between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within thy gates, then shalt thou arise and get thee up into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt come unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall be in those days, and inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. And thou shalt do according to the sentence which they of that place which the Lord shall choose shall show thee. And thou shalt observe to do according to all that they inform thee, according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach thee, and according to the judgment which they shall tell thee, thou shalt do. Thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee to the right hand nor to the left. And the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken unto the priest that standeth to minister there before the Lord thy God, or unto the judge, even that man shall die, and thou shalt put away the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear, and do no more presumptuously. I'm neither a Levite, nor a priest, but I am a judge, and a ruler over the New Testament congregation. And when the New Testament says that I am to rule well, if a controversy ever arose, that could not be satisfied by the church's judgment, I'd satisfy it. 2 Corinthians chapter 19. I find this to be one of the most interesting statements in Scripture. This is Jehoshaphat praying for God's blessing upon the judges he had set up over the nation. 2 Chronicles chapter 19, beginning at verse 8. Moreover in Jerusalem... I guess not everyone's familiar with the book of Second Chronicles. Chapter 19, verse 8. Moreover in Jerusalem did Jehoshaphat set of the Levites and of the priests and of the chief of the fathers of Israel for the judgment of the Lord and for controversies when they returned to Jerusalem. And he charged them, saying, Thus shall ye do in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with a perfect heart. And what cause soever shall come to you of your brethren that dwell in their cities between blood and blood? Now notice this. Between law and commandment, statutes and judgments, ye shall even warn them that they trespass not against the Lord, and so wrath come upon you and upon your brethren. This do, and ye shall not trespass. And he goes on to say the last sentence of that 11th verse, Deal courageously, and the Lord shall be with the good. Controversies would arise between statutes and judgments. Both of those are used to describe statements in the Word of God. There will arise controversies where one member will say, and quote two scripture references, This supports what I'm doing. 
and another member will raise two other passages of Scripture and say, these support what I'm doing. Now, you've got a mess when you've got two parties both using the Bible. Now, we haven't had anything like that yet in this congregation, but it can happen because the Word of God takes study to rightly divide it so that you're not ashamed. Either one or both of those men that are holding opposing positions are about to be shamed because someone must settle the controversy. That's the ruling aspect of a New Testament minister who might have to do such a thing in the case of a controversy that could not be settled between the church. What if the church came up with a passage and the brother who tore the power cord off the jigsaw came up with a passage? Who settles it? Let's go to 1 Timothy 5.17 for a fourth verb of instruction for you brethren. I hope you're still remembering the things I preached to you this morning on the importance of serving the ministry for your own benefit and profit. The things I'm now describing are the things you should be doing and prepared to do for your pastor. Know them, esteem them, obey them, and now honor them. 1 Timothy 5:17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Just like in every calling, in every profession, there are good elders and there are better elders and there are great elders. And you measure an elder according to this text by how well he rules and by how much labor he puts into the word and doctrine. And it tells you, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. That is what was to be taught to the New Testament churches. Now, double honor does not mean you say, most holy father, when you address me. And double some of your adjectives that you put before my name. The word honor in this verse has nothing to do with flattering titles, nor how you shake my hand. The word honor in this verse has only one sense, financial support. How can we prove that? just by looking at the, the context. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 3. Honor widows that are widows indeed. Does that mean you're supposed to say yes ma'am and no ma'am to widows? No, it goes on to explain exactly what the apostle means here. It is financial support of such widows. And it describes that, and we come down all the way to verse 16. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. That's the honor of the context. And verse 18 should be the icing on the cake for proving the point. For, notice verse 18 explains and adds an argument to verse 17. For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. That is a quote from the book of Luke where Jesus said, the laborer is worthy of his hire. Honor your minister. That's financial support. I'm not even going to spend much time on it. Here's all I want to say on supporting your pastor. 
Most of you do an excellent job. Most of you do an excellent job. I know that sermons such as Bible Economics and others have provoked you to see the importance of supporting your ministry and the benefits that will accrue to you by doing it well. And you're practicing that. I want, however, to lay a warning and an exhortation on those who are not doing so well. Those of you who are doing well, I commend you. And I'll get to that in just a moment on what it allows me to do for you. But those of you who are not, you are cutting your own throats. Will a man rob God? Try it. He'll blow out everything you have. Haggai chapter 1. He'll put holes in your bags. You'll earn money. Your wages will go up so fast and the holes will get bigger. This is the word of the Lord, the book of Haggai chapter 1. You'll earn wages to put it in a bag with holes in it and you'll get nowhere. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 25 tells us, There is that scattereth, yet it tendeth to increase. And there is that withholdeth more than is meat, and it tendeth to poverty. Those of you who hold back more than is appropriate or fit, and you don't give what you should to the support of your pastor, it is going to tend to your poverty. You'll have trouble for it, and that will be financial trouble. The Bible says, He that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. They that sow liberally shall reap liberally. Some of you have been very liberal. God knows who you are, and I know who you are. And God will reward you, and I commend you before God. And God will bless you for it. Some of you need to work harder at it, at being liberal. The liberal soul shall be made fat. God blesses the givers. There's so many verses to turn to here. You know I like the book of Malachi where it says, Will, will you rob God? Bring your tithes into my storehouse and your offerings and I'll pour out a blessing from heaven that you'll not be able to receive. If you'll honor God, He'll pour out a blessing upon you financially. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 31. Second Chronicles chapter 31. It's a pity that most ministers are afraid to get up and to teach this particular requirement with all authority. Because when the church does not support the ministry, the ministry is ruined. Second Chronicles chapter 31 and verse 4. Here are some good words about the king Hezekiah. Moreover, he did lots of good things in verses 1 through 3. Moreover, he commanded the people that dwelt in Jerusalem to give the portion of the priests and the Levites that they might be encouraged in the law of the Lord. Have you ever met a discouraged minister? It's the most pitiful sight. The most glorious office on earth. And he's discouraged because he has a bunch of tightwads disobeying and rebelling the against the commandment of God, sitting under his ministry, partaking of his spiritual things, and not giving of their carnal things. And he's discouraged for it. I thank you for encouraging me. I don't have to worry about whether my family is going to have enough to eat. 
I don't have to think about my wife getting a job or myself getting a part-time job. I can apply myself to what God has called me to do without thinking about it. And believe me, if it was close, I'd be thinking about it because of the mind. Mind's a sick one when it comes to financial matters. And I would be thinking about it all the time. Thank God, and I thank you, for those of you who have been faithful. You buy an ox. You buy a spiritual ox and let him go to work for you, and he'll put corn in your crib. That's Proverbs 14.4. I don't like calling myself an ox, but God's already done it, so there must be some glory in it. They are strong. They have big, broad shoulders that can take lots of burdens. And if you buy this ox and keep him going, he will try to put corn in your crib, and that will be spiritual corn. Jesus said, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, men shall press into your bosoms if you'll give faithfully to the ministry. I'm not going to say any more on that, but for those of you who are not giving faithfully and diligently, you're cutting yourselves off. God sees it, and will a man rob God and get away with it? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 25. This brings us to another verb. We've had know your minister. Can you say this evening that you know me? Can you say that you esteem me very highly in love? Can you say that you obey me? Can you say that you honor me? And here Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, Brethren, pray for us. Do you pray for me? Brethren, pray for us. Paul didn't elaborate there. Over in Hebrews 13.18, he said again, pray for us. I need your prayers. If you want me to be all that I should be as your pastor, you'll pray for me. You'll pray for me faithfully. You'll pray for my ministry, that God will give me a bold and a plain approach to the Scriptures. Those are words Paul himself uses in the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians, that I can make the gospel plain and manifest, and that I'll speak it boldly and never hold back anything that God owes you. Pray for me to that end. I need it. Pray for me personally. If you know me, and that isn't knowing the office, brethren. Now, I've said sometimes I magnify mine office, but there are certain verses I'm dealing with tonight that don't have to do with the office other than the man that is in it. Pray for me. Know me. Some of the problems I have already given to you. Pray for my studies. I love David in Psalm 119 and verse 18, where he said to the Lord, Open thou mine eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. I hear you men thank me sometimes for five phases of salvation or for an understanding of the book of Daniel or for other things that God has opened mine eyes to. But pray for that. I want more. I'm not content at all with that particular matter. I covet some more wondrous things out of God's law. Pray for me. That's a scriptural prayer. 
pray for my flesh. Look at what David prayed in Psalm 19. David was God's minister. Psalm 19, if David had to pray it, I need to pray it twice a day. Psalm 19 and verse 13, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. We have Jimmy Swaggerts and Jimmy Bakers and others falling on the left and on the right. Pray for me and my flesh that I will not sin presumptuously and commit the great transgression and ruin this ministry. Pray for me. I have more sin raging inside of me than you can dream of. I believe that with all of my heart. Pray for me. Pray for my health. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, I'm in a strait betwixt two. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to be with you is needful. And brethren, I need to be with you. I'd like to have 50 more years with you. Pray for my health. My health has been good for the last year and a half. Some of you know of an affliction I had a year and a half ago. And it was caused by stress. Pray for my health. God's been merciful to me. Very merciful. You don't know how merciful in my mind, and you don't know how thankful I am to God for the last year and a half. Pray for my health. Pray for my family. I know you pray for your children. Pray for mine. I don't want to be a pastor that throws out five kids. Yes, I might rule my house by throwing five out, but what a mess it would be. Pray for my children that they'll grow up to fear God and that I can be a wise father, that my wife can be a good mother, that my wife can be a good wife. Pray for my family. Pray for wisdom. First Kings chapter 3, Solomon said, Lord, this so great congregation that cannot be numbered, I'm supposed to go in and out before them, I am but a little child. Give me wisdom and understanding mind that I might execute judgment for them. Pray for wisdom for me. That's a scriptural prayer. Let me move to another point. Proverbs chapter 25. Proverbs chapter 25. Remember them that have the rule over you. What should you remember? You should remember to know them. You should remember to esteem them. You should remember to obey them, to honor them, to pray for them, and now to protect them. Protect me, brethren. And what I mean by protect me is would you please consider my time? I have 168 hours in a week. I'll try to use them well. Try to protect my time. Proverbs 25 and verse 17 is not the most pleasant text in the world to bring up, but I must. Withdraw thy foot from thy neighbor's house, lest he be weary of thee, and so hate thee. If every member called and or visited as much as you do, how much time would I have left 
for prayer and the Word of God, reading, exhortation, doctrine, my own personal communion with God, and my family responsibilities, and some sleep. I know my boss used to say, what'd you do last night between midnight and six? Whenever I said that I didn't have a project completed yet, he'd say, what were you doing last night for the six hours between midnight and 6 a.m.? Please try to consider my time. I don't ever want to get personal in a rebuke for taking my time because that would hurt me too much. I will do it if I have to. And there are not very many problems. I hope that everybody will consider it from what I'm saying publicly. I have work every day to do just like you men do. Those of you, you men who go to the office and sit, how would you like everyone calling you? You have work, I have work to do that, in my judgment, is far more important than yours. And if the time runs out, I don't get it done either. And I get behind with a master that Matthew 25 said is a hard master. And that's the captain who's called me to be a soldier. And not only is it the time, but it's the emotional rubber band that I get on, bouncing from one problem to another, and exhausts me faster than almost anything I've encountered in my life. I can remember working hours at Michigan National and never feeling it because there was no emotional drain. And I'd go to school when I got home, and when I got home from graduate courses, I'd then study for the ministry. And it didn't drain me. I did that for five years. But there are times where by three in the afternoon, with 12 or 14 telephone calls, with different questions, problems, or conversations, I'm exhausted. Do you know what I want? Howard Cosell again. I want some moron to entertain an empty brain because I'm empty. Protect me. Don't forget that I have a family too. Do you communicate freely, regularly, and completely with me? See, sometimes people call me, sometimes people visit with me, or I visit with you, or I call you, and the conversation is me on the world's greatest fishing expedition. Can I get my hook down their throat to snare some word, some problem, and pull it out? And I work. I cast my line. I reel it in. It's empty. I cast my line. I reel it in. It's empty. After about an hour of that, I want to take up fishing like cavemen. You get a club and you beat him over the head. Uh, this is practical advice. When I have to work for hours to get a problem out of you, you have not helped me. You have wore me out. Communicate with me regularly 
by any means that you might choose, but let's get to the point and spill your guts, as the saying goes. Don't make me work for it. I mean, I'll work for it. I enjoy a little bit of that, but not a lot of it, because it gets tiring with 58 members. If you want to help me, you'll communicate freely, regularly, and completely. You'll open yourself up and let me know the problems that are going on in your life. And brethren, if you'll judge the small matters in this congregation among yourselves, you can certainly free me up. There's a lot of tripe and trash that I hear about that I wish you'd take care of yourselves. Ninety percent of what I hear about, I wish I didn't hear about. Ninety percent of what I hear about, you can take care of yourselves. If you would rebuke each other like you should in Matthew 18 and go and reconcile yourselves like you should in Matthew chapter 5, I could put myself in the Word of God in prayer and be where I ought to be instead of handling phone calls about so-and-so. Well, did you know that so-and-so did this or that? There is a place to tell the pastor such things. The Bible does use the very words hearsay. If thou hearsay in one of thy cities that somebody is going off and worshiping another god, you've only got the witness of one. No judgment can be executed. This is Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 19. No judgment can be executed, but the minister of God is to go and make diligent inquisition to determine if the matter is so or not. And if it is certain, then judgment is to be executed. But did you realize that in 90% of the cases I'm talking about, you can rebuke a brother and stop it, and I don't even need to hear about it. I am probably already aware of the situation 95 times out of 100 before you call me. Please help me. Protect your minister. I don't preach messages like this very often. Let me finish. But protect me. You can protect me by considering my time. Now, some of you consider my time too well. You never call. You know what that does? I wonder what is wrong with in their soul. I wonder what's bothering them. I wonder what their fears are right now. I wonder what struggles they have in their heart. And I worry. And if you'd call, I can have that resolved. Some of you don't call me. Some of you call me too much. Judge wisely, and to me the best measurement is if everyone called as frequently as you call, would it bury me? If you don't want to call, just send me a letter. And don't waste paragraphs on extraneous material. Get to the point. Spill your guts. I won't bring it to church and lay it in the back table. But it can help me. Brethren, I will spend my hours for you. And my most productive hours are not listening to tripe on the telephone. My most productive hours are when I'm on my knees or in this book and I want to be there for you. Help me do that. Hebrews 13.7 goes on to say, Whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Now we're getting into a gray, the gray areas of managing your spiritual life. Paul said, not only remember them that have the rule over you, who have spoken to you the word of God, he said, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. 
What is the end of my conversation? My conversation is, are not my words, but my life. What is the end of my life? To please the Lord Jesus Christ is the end of my life. My purpose for living is to serve Christ who has called me to be your pastor. You consider that fact, that I have a job 24 hours a day to serve Christ, who is my captain, as your pastor, you should follow my faith. I hope that my faith is an example of a faith that is not intimidated by circumstances. But it always maintains confidence and trust in God to deliver us from any problem we might experience as a family, as a pastor, as a church. I hope you'll follow that faith. I hope that to some degree, unless your conscience will not allow you to, or you have a scriptural case that you can bring to me, you will follow my faith in matters of Christian liberty. God said, whose faith follow? Yes, every man is judged of his own conscience. And if your conscience is strong in a particular matter, I'll do just as Paul did and leave you to your conscience. But if your conscience is not strong, but you have doubts about a particular thing, follow your pastor. Trust his judgment. Why did God give you that pastor with those experiences to be your pastor at that particular point in time? There's a reason for it. Follow his faith. And when I have to judge in a gray area, please follow that judgment. You know, the apostle heard about that fornicator, and like I said this morning, he just simply said, I have already judged in this matter, and when you're gathered together, exclude the brother. Look at Ezekiel 44. I want to give a few references in establishing that God's ministers must make a difference in some areas that are what we call gray areas. Someone's conscience should be honored above your own if you're able. If you have a conscience that's strongly opposed, then go with your conscience. If you've got a scriptural position against something I practice, I hope you've been to me a long time ago. I don't know of one. Ezekiel chapter 44 is describing the priesthood. Beginning at verse 17, it tells what they're to wear, their linen clothing. In verse 17, they're to have linen bonnets. Verse 18, linen breeches in verse 18 to cover their thighs. There were strict articles of clothing to cover the nakedness of the priests. In verse 19, it describes how they were to go in to the tabernacle to worship God. Verse 18 says they were not to sweat. Verse 20 tells how they were to shave their heads. They were not allowed to allow their hair to grow long. Verse 21, they were not to drink wine when they went into the court, the inner court of the Lord's house. Verse 22 tells us they could only marry a priest, widow, or a virgin. All of these are commandments that you can also find back in the books of Moses. The priesthood had stricter requirements on it for living than the, the rest of the congregation to set an example. That's why when we go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read, let a bishop be the husband of one wife. Because in those churches, there were many polygamous relationships. But the pastor was to set forth God's ideal and was not to have two, three, four, five wives. He was to set up God's ideal. Now in the Old Testament, God allowed polygamy. 
In the New Testament, polygamy is not adultery because polygamy is not the committing of adultery. It's being married to two women. But a minister was to have one as a qualification for the ministry. He has a higher requirement set upon him than the rest of the congregation to be an example, which point I'll be to in just a moment. But notice verses 23 and 24. Speaking of these priests, they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. And in controversy they shall stand in judgment and they shall judge it according to my judgments and they shall keep my laws and my statutes in all mine assemblies and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. God's ministers have an obligation upon them, and this passage is quoted in several other places, to separate between the holy and the profane. There are, when you have a gray area, how big is the gray area? Is it this wide, or is it this wide, and you have holy and profane over here? Now, there are some souls that love to stretch gray areas. They'll stretch gray until there is no black and white. But a minister is to make some judgments in some of those areas. And you, no one in this congregation can say I've ever abused that. I'm the most liberal pastor 95% of you have ever dreamed of having with the name of a Baptist church that preaches salvation by unconditional grace. Because the Bible's a book of liberty. It is the law of liberty of the New Testament. But there will be times where there needs to be some distinctions drawn and the reins pulled in on excess. I love the story in Jeremiah 35. Don't turn there, but it's about Jonadab. Jonadab was the man. Jehu was riding along on his chariot and he stopped and picked up Jonadab and said, come and ride with me. Let me show you my zeal for the Lord. Well, Jonadab was so upset about the way things were going in Israel and Judah that he told his sons, I never want you to drink wine again, grape juice, eat raisins. I never want you to own property again. Because I want you to suffer and beg God for mercy on this nation. Now, God never required those things. That was simply something that Jonadab required of his sons and their sons and their sons. And the whole chapter of Jeremiah 35 is about how God honored that man and his children for having obeyed in a matter like that that wasn't a commandment of God Almighty. He honored those grandchildren because they obeyed their father who told them to do something to honor God that was exalting and honoring and obeying a father. And there may be times when a minister must teach something in a gray area to restrain evil in an evil generation. And remember, I've qualified it this way. It can never go against Scripture. And second, it will not go against your conscience if you are severely convicted in your conscience. But if your conscience is simply in doubt, you have to learn to follow the faith of the man who preaches you the Word of God. Now, if it's still doubting, he that doubteth is damned if he eat. But when, you know how we get rid of doubts. It's by instruction. And if you can learn that God has chosen a minister to be an example, you can learn to follow his faith in some of those matters. 
Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're dealing with the verb follow. Follow the faith of your minister. 1 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle said to the young preacher, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Let me comment on these verses, this verse briefly. How can a man be an example? There's two things required for a man to be an example. He has to be superior, first of all. Second of all, his actions have to be visible for a man to be an example. If you break down either one of those, you don't have an example. If you don't know how a certain person behaves, he can't be your example. If he's not as good as you are, how can he be your example? That's why when you look at the qualifications for the ministry in 1 Timothy chapter 3, they're rather stringent. Because God wants men put in the office that the majority, if not all, of the rest of the congregation looks to them as an example in certain areas. These areas, some of these areas are mentioned in this verse, six of them. First of all, be thou an example of the believers in word. The Bible says a lot about the right word spoken at the right time. The Bible talks about sound speech that cannot be condemned. And here I am preaching on a verse that is the most intimidating to me in the entire word of God as your pastor. I know I am not perfect in word, but God help me to be an example. And you want to pray for something big? Pray for that. That I can be a living example of how the apostles would have walked if they would have been here, or how Jesus Christ would have walked if he would have been here, and God have mercy where I haven't lived up to my calling. Be thou an example of the believers in word. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. I fear salt. I'm salty by nature. That doesn't justify a thing. Let your speech be always with grace. I don't like verses like that. They cut me in pieces. But I'm to be your example in word. You say sometimes you speak harshly and I'm just not that way. I don't like that example. I'll give you 155 examples from the word of God of harsh men if you need it. I'm harsh for a reason. Most of the times when I'm harsh in the pulpit, I'm harsh for a reason. Because God's word is harsh. And God's ministers that I find the most written about were harsh men. Be thou an example of the believers in conversation. That's my manner of life. Samuel was a young boy who said he grew in favor with God and men. I hope that I am an example of a man that grows in favor with other men and with God Himself. I'm going to be an example in conversation. First Timothy chapter 3, where the qualifications for the ministry are given a minister before he's ordained, is to have a good report of them that are without. He's to have a reputation before the world that is highly commendable. I had that before I was ordained. The Bible says here that I'm to be an example in charity. How many of you know and have seen me overlook and forget transgressions? I've overlooked 
and forgotten many transgressions that you have committed. And I never even bring them to your attention. I'm proud of it. Because it's a glorious thing to do according to the Word of God. I read in Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, the Lord Jesus Christ taught Paul, and again, here he is speaking to elders in Acts chapter 20, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. I think it is obvious I am willing to give and be spent for this church.